As you know, we've started a series uh, called Rooted, and that series kind of uh, stemmed from, pardon the pun there, but it stemmed from a wall hanging that was donated to the church. The wall hanging usually lives in the conference room, but we brought it out here for the series. And as I looked at that wall hanging, I was just kind of inspired to think more about the trees that we find in Scripture. And so we've been looking at some of those important trees. Last week, we talked about uh, how we can be, uh, we can go a little bit farther than the shallow consumer Christianity that is, is so prevalent in our culture today. We can go a little bit farther than that and we can be firmly planted in faith and deeply rooted in love. And so we talked about that last week. Before that, the week before that, we looked at the tree of life. And you'll remember the tree of life shows up in the book of Genesis. It's there in the garden. Adam and Eve have full access to the tree of life until they sin. And once they sin, they are uh, separated from it and denied access to that tree of life. And then as they have generation after generation after generation, all of us have been denied access to that tree of life. That's why the wages of sin is death, because we can't get to the tree of life to continue to eat of its fruit anymore. However... While we saw that in Genesis, we also saw the same tree represented in Revelation. We saw it at the beginning, and we see it at the end of time. And in Revelation, the promise is that now we will be welcomed to the tree of life in heaven, and we'll be able to, to enjoy its fruit and live forever when we get there. On that Sunday that we talked about that tree of life, and we saw it in Genesis and Revelation beginning and end, I pointed out to you that what makes the difference between being denied in Genesis and being welcomed to it in Revelation, what makes the difference there is something that happened on a different tree right in the middle of that time. And that what happened on that tree is the story of Christ on the cross. The tree of Calvary is what makes the difference between being denied to the tree of life and being accepted and welcomed to it. And so this morning, I want us to think about that tree together. In Acts chapter 5, at verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed. Here, the apostle is speaking to a group of Jews who are trying to shut him up and get rid of him. And he says, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, look, by hanging him on a tree. And so this morning, I want us to look at that tree as we consider a cursed tree on a dead hill. A cursed tree on a dead hill. To help us with that, I want to invite your attention to uh, Galatians chapter 3 at verse 13. If you have your copy of Scripture with you, you can turn to Galatians 3 and 13. If you uh, prefer to use the Bible app, remember that if you look in the menu under events, you'll find uh, kind of the outline and you can follow along in the message this morning and all the scriptures are printed there for you. But in Galatians chapter 3, beginning at, uh, at verse 13, it says, Christ redeemed us 
from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And so we look at a cursed tree on a dead hill. I want to, first of all, notice that Christ paid the cost. If you look at that verse again there at the very beginning of it, it says Christ redeemed us. That word redeemed is a beautiful word. It's a powerful word. It means to buy someone out of slavery. And most of the time, if one was to buy someone out of slavery, the intent was to set them free. Otherwise, there, there, there would be uh, just a cha- an exchange. Here's money for uh, a slave. But to buy someone out of slavery usually intended that that person was going to set the, the slave free. Redemption is to buy someone out of. To redeem them is to restore to them freedom and life. And here it says that Christ redeemed us. And that's such a beautiful and powerful picture. But he redeemed us from what? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. And I want us to take just a moment to think about what that curse of the law might be because he he mentions the word curse many times in this one verse. What is this curse? Imagine that you have to keep the law with no grace. The law is a list of rules, regulations. You must do these things. You must not do these things. And so you say, well, I can, I can see this list and, and you know, I could, probably, I could probably do 70% of that. And the curse is that's not good enough. If you break one, you have broken the law. Out of this massive list of do's and don'ts, if you miss one point of it, you miss the whole law. The curse is the law is impossible for us to keep. And yet we are, we are intended to keep, we're, we're, we're told to keep the law knowing that we can't do it. And so we wind up in this catch-22. You have to keep the law, but you can't keep the law. But you have to keep the law, but you can't keep the law. So what is the point? The point is so that the law could teach us that we can't keep the law. The law's job is to teach us that we are sinful people. Every one of us was born into sin. Every one of us has a sin problem, and the law is what helps us see that. The law shines the light on our, on our dirt, if you will. The law shines the light on our sin so that we can see it. If we could keep the laws and do everything just right, then we could be right with God on our own, but the reality is not one of us could have ever accomplished that. No human being could have accomplished that. And so, Scripture says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us is caught in this curse. You must, but you can't. So what do we do? 
in order to please God, I must do things I can't do. And so it says that Jesus came to redeem us from that curse, to buy us out of that. The law did its job. It pointed out our sin, and then Jesus comes to redeem us from that curse. And so in 3 and 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. In 1 Peter chapter 1, it says it this way, you were ransomed. A very similar concept as redeemed. You were paid. Somebody paid a price to get you out and set you free. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. The futile ways. You must, but you can't. It's futile. You were ransomed from that, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That's how, that's how valuable you are to God. It's also how seriously God takes sin. Sin is such a serious thing that God sent Christ to give his own blood to pay the ransom for it. And you are so valuable to God that God chose not to accomplish that with things of the world like gold and silver. He chose to accomplish that with the precious blood of Jesus. You need never again wonder or question whether or not God loves you and finds you valuable because he gave his own son to ransom you. First Peter continues in the next chapter, in chapter 2 at verse 24, he himself bore our sins, and that is so important, that he became our substitute. He bore our sins. Why are they our sins? Because he never did sin. That's what's so amazing. The one who was perfect, now he faced temptation. He faced Temptation just like we do. The Bible says he faced temptations in all ways like we do. So he was completely human and was completely tempted, and yet he never gave in to temptation, never once sinned. However, here is the innocent one dying on the cross. Why? Because he's a substitute. He's taking our place, paying our debt. He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He died for our sin so that we might die to sin. In other words, when we look at sin, we say to sin, you're dead to me and I'm dead to you. We know you no longer have power or control over my life. Now I live a life for him. Might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed he died the death you could not die in order that you could live the life you could not live Christ paid the cost but then I also want us to see in this in this powerful verse that Christ became the curse he paid us, he paid the price to redeem us from the curse, but then he also became the curse. Here it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He became a curse. That's crazy. 
back in the, uh, back in the Old Testament law, um, if someone had committed a crime that was so bad that it called for the death penalty, they would often uh, carry out that death penalty, and then they would pick that, the body of the deceased up, and they would hang that body on a tree so that as people came by, they would see that dead body on the tree, and they would say, man, I don't want that to ever happen to me, so I'm going to be more careful than that. And so the tree became a place of curse because it was only the guilty who were placed on the tree. And so it says that, that those who were hanged on a tree were cursed. Christ became that curse. In 2 Corinthians it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The one who knew no sin became sin. He became the curse. What a powerful word, those, those two words. For our sake, he made him to be sin. For us, for our sake. Matter of fact, we might say that those two words comprise one of the most beautiful phrases in all of Scripture. For us. That's what he's done for us. He lived a life that we could not live. He died a death we could not die. He paid a debt he did not owe. He gave us a gift that we could not earn. Christ became the curse. And then also notice that Christ endured the cross. He paid the cost, he became the curse, and he endured the cross. It says in our verse, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He was hanged on that tree that represented the guilty. This is the, the Old Testament law that I was referring to just a moment ago and it tells them that when when uh, someone has uh, received the death penalty put his body on that tree it says his body shall not remain all night on that tree but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God and so I said you don't want your land to be cursed so since you got a man hanging on that tree there, that's a curse. You don't want that curse to affect your land, so don't leave him overnight. Let's go ahead and bury him and get, and get done with that. But in that teaching, he says a hanged man is cursed by God. Imagine the Son of God being cursed by God the Father. A hanged man is cursed. What we mean by that is God the Father placed all of his wrath for all of sin squarely on the shoulders of the one who had never sinned himself. All four Gospels tell us that he was crucified on a hill called Golgotha. That's an Aramaic word that means the place of the skull. And when you look at that hill, uh, there are caves and rock formations and indentions in the side of the hill that kind of make it look like a skull. 
there, there are kind of holes where the eyes might be, and there's kind of these formations where the, the nose or the, the chin might be. You can look at the hill, and you kind of see a skull. And so it got the name called the place of the skull. But I think that it was, it was uh, not a mistake by any means that they chose that hill to be the place where they executed people. Here's a place that represents death. And so they killed people on that place. He died on a cursed tree on a dead hill. Understand as well that Jesus was not partially punished, nor did he just fulfill a religious ritual. He was killed. He died a painful, excruciating, humiliating death. As the blood flowed from his body, he got weaker and weaker as the hours went by. We understand that not everyone would have been nailed to the cross, but they chose to nail him, partially because they had such a terrible hatred of him. It was another way they could torture him after he had already received the the crown of thorns, and they had beaten that crown into his head, and they spit on him. Of course, he hanged naked, humiliated. When we show pictures of him, we put a loincloth on him. That's, that's to show honor and respect to him and to protect our uh, feelings about him. But he hanged naked in front of the world. There in his humiliation and his pain and suffering, he, he would have... Uh, would have just been bleeding from all of those wounds and the more blood that is shed the less strength he has it was during the day and so until everything went dark the sun would have been right on him and scripture explains how how he hung there with us on his mind that we were his purpose because as he hung there he the first thing that is recorded that he said was, Father, forgive them. I believe he looked over all the ages. He wasn't just talking about the Romans at his feet or even the Jewish leaders who had manipulated the whole thing. I don't even think he was just talking about the guy who had the hammer in his hand, but I believe he looked across all of the ages and throughout all the world and he saw every one of us in need of a Savior. Not long before this, he looked over Jerusalem and he wept for them because they were sheep who needed a shepherd and they wouldn't turn to him. And I think in a very same way, while he hung on the cross, he looks across and he sees all of humanity tainted by sin and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As time goes on, it becomes more and more difficult for Jesus to breathe. As he gets weaker and weaker, it's harder for him to lift his body up, and his own body weight now is crushing down on his lungs. That's how he eventually died, not from the loss of blood, but from the loss of, of air. He couldn't breathe. He would have pushed with his last... And the last energy that he had, he would have pushed on the nails to lift up, to get breath. Actually, the problem was, was exhaling, but he couldn't breathe. 
And then eventually, when all of the strength was gone from his body, he couldn't take that last breath. I think it's very interesting that he died in that way because he got to the place where he was too weak to breathe. But I also think that it is incredibly interesting that before he died, he made some powerful statements, one of which was, it is finished. The word is tetelestai. It's a financial word. It's a financial word that would have been printed on a document that when you made the last payment on your loan, they would have put tetelestai. It's finished. It's paid off. It's done. And one of the last things Jesus said on the cross, it's finished. Not that my life is over, not that I can't breathe anymore, not that I'm, not that I'm giving up and I'm quitting, but I have done what I came to do. I completed my purpose. I've paid the price. And that's why the veil in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. God is saying, now that the price has been paid, there is no longer a separation of man and God. Now you can be reconciled to God. It's finished. But as he hangs, losing strength, losing blood, not breathing, he says, it is finished. And then the scripture says, he cried out with a loud voice. Now that tells me that he was in complete control from beginning to end. When did Jesus finally make his last statement? Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. When did he make that statement? At just the right moment after everything he came to do had been done. He could have continued as long as necessary. He could have called the angels down and wiped everybody out. We all know that. But the point that we miss in Scripture that is so powerful to me is he cried out with a loud voice. He still had strength. He could have hung there longer, but it was unnecessary because it was finished. It was done. And so he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had completed his task and received the full punishment for all of the sin of all of mankind, of all time, he cried out, it's finished. Since there was no reason for him to stay, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and he breathed his last. Romans 5 and 8 reminds us that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. A cursed tree on a dead hill. While we were yet sinners... That's an incredible phrase. Because I think most of us, had we been in the decision-making position 
Had we been the ones who were running the show and deciding how things would happen, most of us would have said to sinners, you better get right and you better apologize and then I'll let you come to me. But the power of God's grace and the amazing truth of His love is that while we were still sinners, He didn't wait for us to get cleaned up first. He didn't wait for us to get it straight first. While we were still in need, He proved He loved us by sending His Son demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So when the Son of God became the Lamb of God, he experienced the wrath of God. He satisfied the justice of God. He demonstrated the love of God. He fulfilled the purpose of God. He redeemed the people of God and he established the family of God, all for the glory of God.